once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We're pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. We are taught this week by lead teacher Randy Pope. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray and let's prepare ourselves for what I hope is going to be a very important and uh, profitable series. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow now to say thank you for your written word. We certainly thank you for the living word, our Christ. And we pray that your word might be able to be delivered through me as broken as I am uh, to a people as broken as we are to take us to a place that will honor you and bless us. We pray as we address this subject matter of the law that we might see it for what it really is and love it for how good it truly is. Grant that we pray. We thank you for this series, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our series is entitled The Lovable Law. I entitled that for a reason, not just the law, the lovable law. And by the way, if you want to know the next series that will come after this series, it's going to be entitled A Glorious Grace. We're going to be talking about law, then we're going to be talking about grace. Now, I have to shatter some wrong thinking that many of us, even as God's people who have studied the Bible maybe for years, may have some wrong understandings about the law. You see, it's very common in churches today, God's people, Christian people, to believe that the law has to do with the Old Testament and grace has to do with the New Testament. That is not true. Throw that away. That should not even be debated. No, it's not. The Old Testament was about law and grace, and the New Testament is about law and grace. Granted, there is a distinguishing note, particularly in Galatians, where law is pitted against grace, but only as it has to do with salvation, only to teach that you are not saved by law, but never were you saved by law. And now we're saved by grace as we've always been saved by grace. It's important to know that the Old Testament is about law and grace. The New Testament is about law and grace. If you are a non-believer, not a true Christian, in the Old Testament, you are living under the law. If you're in the Old Testament and you're a true follower of Jehovah, putting your faith in the coming Messiah then you in the Old Testament would be living under grace. In the New Testament, if you're not a true follower of Christ, then you are living under the law, whether we recognize it or not. When we come to faith, from that moment on, we will be living under grace and grace alone. But that does not mean that the law does not stay very important and very much a part of our Christian life. It is very, very important. So, have to get that straight. Now, I have explained this. I, I, I put a, uh, a little short video uh, in our electronic newsletter, The Pulse, and I said, please know there's a new series. Come to this new series. 
But if you have to miss, if you have to miss, make sure you get the first two messages. It's the introduction. You've got to get this because I'm going to lay a foundation, as you'll see in just a moment, that's going to help us understand the law. And then if we get into the commandments of God and you do not understand what I'm saying now in this first and second week, I'm telling you, it's going to be hard to understand. It really is. And so I'm going to encourage you, bring your friends to this series. I tell them, listen to the podcast and, and hear this first week and join us for this, it can make an incredible difference in people's lives. Now, having said that, I want to read from a, a fellow, some of our older folks will remember uh, uh, Ted Koppel. Uh, Ted Koppel was ABC. He, was, uh, he had the program uh, ABC Nightline. And uh, this was over 25 years ago. And what I'm about to quote, he gave at the 135th commencement of Duke University. Now, as you, as you watch and, and listen to this, just imagine this was said at Duke University, and it was only 25 years ago. You'll see how times have changed. This is what he says. In the place of truth, we've discovered facts. For moral absolutes, we have substituted moral ambiguity. Everyone's opinion is afforded equal weight regardless of the substance of, or merit. Our society finds truth too strong a medicine to digest undiluted. What Moses brought down from Mount Sinai were not the ten suggestions. They are commandments. Are, not were. The sheer beauty of the commandments is that they codify in a handful of words acceptable human behavior, not just for then or now, but for all time. Do you know that if he were to say that or someone were to say that today at most any university there would be jeering and booing and hissing and he'd be run out of the out of the auditorium he went on to say as a society we're not only ignoring warning signals we have become defiantly cynical of such warning signals and that is true and it's much worse today obviously than it was over 25 years ago I said in my uh, little statement that was put out in the pulse. This is a unique series, as was the one on Daniel, where I say, young people, this one's for you. I'm thinking about you in a special way. I always want to think about you in any, any series, but I'm thinking about you particularly in this one because this one is critically, critically important for you. I'll say this, young people, Go to your peers and just allow them, say it in the most gracious way, but allow them to know your stance that you believe that the Ten Commandments are from God and for all people, and you believe them exactly as they were given. You see what happens to your social life from that moment on. You're not going to be the most popular person. You see, the commandments are not loved by many people. They're not known, nor are they loved. Do you know that a survey has been taken, and it showed that Americans can only list at best three of the Ten Commandments? That's the average, three commandments. The surveys show that even those in church who know more of the commandments, and most don't know all of them, 
But even those who say, and I actually think they are appropriate, and I, I guess I can say I believe in them, they'll go on to say, but I have to be honest, I don't like them. I, I don't think they're desirable. You see, the people today don't understand the commandments. To see a title, the lovable law, they say, what are you talking about, the lovable law? That law is anything but lovable. It just tells you what you can't do and don't do and all of that. As a parent, and as a parent, I'm, I hope I was a loving parent. Carol as well. We certainly try to be. We love our kids a lot. They're adults now. They're grown. But among everything that we have to do as parents, one of the things is we have to be the lawgivers, meaning that we have to create rules for our family and for the kids. And so we have things that we would say, you can't do this, or you're going to have to do that. And nothing will hurt a parent more than to do that and then the child to think either one, you're doing this just to make my life miserable. You're doing this to restrict my freedom. You, that's why you're doing this. You don't care about me. When it's just the opposite, we're saying, no, you don't know how much I long for your happiness, for your well-being. I'll stay awake at night struggling over the fact that you're not doing well if you're not. Don't believe that. Or the other thing would be for a child to think at least this, that, you know what, if I keep these rules, then my parents will love me. Or if I keep them really well, they'll love me more at least. And if I don't keep these rules, I'm not going to be loved as much. This is a way that I can earn the love of my parents. That will break a good parent's heart. Now, having said that, I just want to put it up just to put it in our minds before this series ever gets kicked off very far. I want us to know two common misconceptions about the law. Young people particularly, I think, are sensing that this is the way it is. Misconceptions, number one misconception, that they were given to restrict our freedom. No, they're not. They're not given to restrict our freedom. Uh, John 8.32 makes it really clear. It says, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Now, we do need to know this. The law is given in the Old Testament in under three categories. This is important to know, three categories of the law. There is, first of all, what's called the ceremonial law. We'll put that up, ceremonial law. You know, all the washings and the cleansings, the shedding of blood, all of that stuff. That was all given for the purpose to show that without the shedding of blood, without the washing of God over our souls, that we can never be made pure, we can never be forgiven, we can never be made right. And that there would be one who would shed his blood, Jesus, and he would ultimately be the one that all of these washings and cleansings would be pointing to. With the understanding that once that Jesus came, all of the ceremonial laws taken away, no longer for us. There's a second kind of law. It's called judicial law. Some people call it the civil law. The civil law was given as Israel became a theocracy, theos God, rule of God. And so as the theocracy was made, and here God is king and ruling over Israel, he gave the laws. 
And those laws were good for Israel until no longer were it, was Israel considered the people of God. When the church became the people of God, including Jews and Gentiles alike, at that point, many nations, and God gives the authority over the nations to establish the judicial or civil law. So all of these laws in the Old Testament that were given as civil laws, judicial laws, they're done away with. Now the national law takes their place. Now, one third kind of law, and this is where the Ten Commandments are found, it's called the moral law. The moral law is the Ten Commandments and every law that flows out of them. Do you know you can take every moral law in the Bible and you can put them under one of the ten? Everyone falls under that. That's why when Jesus was approached and was asked to trap him, what's the greatest law of all? He says, well, there's really two. Love your God with all your heart, first four laws, and love other people as yourself, the last six laws. That's the way he defined it. They're the laws. Now, the reality is, among the best of theologians, there would be some dispute on only a small percentage. There are some laws, particularly some of the judicial laws, that you can read and go, now, is that a moral law or is that a judicial? But virtually all laws, you can put them in either category. They need to understand that the first two types of laws, they've been taken away. I'd like to read a quote for you. Thomas Watson, uh, who uh, lived in the 1600s, and uh, a Puritan of old and a, a great, uh, great thinker. This is what he says. He says, the moral law is unalterable. It remains still a force. Though the ceremonial and judicial laws are abrogated, the moral law delivered by God's own mouth is of perpetual use in the church. It was written on tablets of stone to show its perpetuity. So we've looked at the one misconception to restrict our freedom. There's a second. The misconception that, well, these laws were given to us as guidelines by which man could earn the favor of God. I'll tell you this, I think that belief is the single greatest lie ever perpetrated on mankind by Satan himself. I believe it. You go to anybody outside the true church who really understands faith in Christ, and you say, hey, by the way, how do you think you get to heaven? How do you think you get God to like you? How do you think you could be invited into God's family? And the answers are going to some way reflect, well, you've got to be good, you've got you to obey his laws, you have to, everybody seems to think that is the answer. So you that are seekers among us, you're here trying to figure out the faith. If you hear nothing else today, know this, it is not by the keeping of the law. It is going to only be through the work of Jesus on our behalf then why the law? That's what we want to understand. The law was given as the great gift of God's grace. If we didn't have the law, oh my goodness. Now, how can I help us all understand that? I think the best way I could do that is to help you understand through an analogy, a, a picture, human marriage. And uh, I'm going to set up this whole introduction around a, an analogy of an engagement to marriage. And I'm going to do that showing how the laws become stipulations to a great 
wonderful love. And without those stipulations, there would not be a great wonderful love. I'm going to do that by using the story of Carol and my engagement. Now, if I, I know not if, but the, the, the ones that are kind of dozing right now, kind of, oh, I can't quite keep my eye, I don't know. If, if it's a loved one, you know, hit them real gently right now because in case they drift back again, then they come during a... You got to know, this is a fictitious story. <laughs> fictitious. You hear that? This is not a real story. I do not want people coming up afterwards asking me about our marriage. <laughs> fictitious. So here's the story. Carol and I dated for five years, after which we became engaged. We went to premarital counseling, and the counseling was very helpful. Uh, it would have seemed as if everything was fine, but I went home after the counseling with a deep guilt that I could not shake until finally I called Carol and said, Carol, we got to get together. We have to talk. She could tell by the seriousness of my voice and the urgency of the time to do it that something was wrong. And we got together, and, and I said, Carol, I, I think we're on... We're on different pages in some respect regarding our expectations of marriage. And we just have to talk. And I, I, I want to do the talk. And I want to ask you if you will just wait till I finish. No response till I finish. Then I want to hear what you have to say. But here it is. I've been giving our relationship a lot of thought. And you know how much I love you. And how excited I am about the marriage. But you need to know that I probably have some expectations that you don't have. Because... I'm assuming and expecting that it will be okay for me to keep dating after we're married. It won't probably be a lot, but it will be some. And I, I just, and of course she started, I said, well, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. Number two, though I don't necessarily date them now, but I've had some wonderful dating relationships. And I've got a lot of pictures, a lot of memorabilia. And I don't want you to think I'm going to strew them all over the house, but in my office and special places where I am, I want to keep those before me just to remind me of how much I enjoy those relationships. There's a third thing, Carol. The third thing is that, you know these rings that we're going to give each other? Um, I think it's a good plan. I like them and so forth. But I want you to know this. When I'm with you, I will always wear my ring. But I don't want you to be shocked when you hear that I'm away and with other people at other places, that maybe I'm just meeting folks, that I probably won't be wearing my ring. And, and you know, it's not that I won't tell anybody that we're married, but, you know, it's just not going to be something that everyone will know. It's just the way I am. I'm, I'm sorry. That's just something important to me. And there's one fourth thing, Carol, that I got to say. I know that you're probably expecting us to spend a lot of time together, and we will spend time together, but I don't want you to think it's going to be a lot of time. And we'll go places together. We'll do stuff. But, you know, this kind of time that a lot of people want, which is real intimate and kind of together and kind of talking deep and sharing your heart and you know, really getting to know each other in a real deep way, that's just not the type of guy I am. I, I just, 
I don't want you to expect that and be disappointed. So, uh, Carol, I need to hear now what, what you think. And I should probably be gathering the, her response because I see tears coming down her face. I said, Carol, something's wrong. What is it? Now, just so you'll understand, you'll never guess what she said to me. She had the gall to call into question my love for her. Can you imagine that? No, here's the reality. If that were a true story, I would be mugged by hundreds of women before I left this place. I would be spit on, slapped at. I'd be, I'd be called names that you couldn't. And you say, you're disgusting, Randy Pope. How could you ever do that to a woman like Carol? That's a stupid, dumb, you're crazy. Well, the reality is this. It would be crazy. That's why I underscore this is not a true story. Did everybody know that? <laughs> so last night, after I preached on Saturday evening, one of my very good friends, this is the text I get from him. Great sermon to kick off the series. Was really proud of your transparency as you shared the struggles of y'all's engagement. <laughs> I said, no, no. Well, of course, I texted back a good friend and an Auburn grad. <laughs> and I know that's hard to think friend and Auburn, but it, I texted back. I didn't think about the fact that someone from Auburn would not know the meaning of fictitious. All right, so a fictitious story, all right? Here's the truth. If that were a true story, we would all know that, one, I didn't really love Carol. Not if that's the way I could be thinking. Number two, Carol would never agree to the marriage with someone who would hold that position. And let me just give you a little bit of hint. Neither would God. So I want to give you an insight into the Ten Commandments. You'll see something I bet most of you have never seen before. You probably have never understood. And young people, until you understand this, you're going to always say, that law, oh, that law, oh, that God of the law. You've got to understand. This is what's happening in the text that we're going to look at, Exodus 19 through 24. We're going to be in that text throughout the entire series at some place or the other. We're going to read some of it in just a minute. But you've got to understand that the Ten Commandments are stipulations of a love relationship. That's just not something I'm reading into and say, oh, there's a great analogy. No, no, no. This is the way it's intended to be written. This is the way God has given it to us. So as I read this, watch it come alive. Here's the way you see this taking place. This is a preparation for engagement and then the marriage between God and his bride, who is Israel. Moses, who is 
the man whom God has chosen to be the leader over these Semitic people who are not yet a nation. And he calls from his mountain where God is residing in a way that Moses could understand, is called to the mountain. And he goes to the mountain and God says, I want to marry the people known as Israel. I want to marry them. And he uses a word that's called nation in our text. In the Hebrew, it's the word goy, and it's referring to a collection of people viewed as an individual called a nation. It's the first time that word is going to be used. It is after this scene that's taking place in Exodus 19 through 24, from that point and only then, but from now on, God will call himself the husband of Israel. You're going to see the word covenant used. Covenant is a love-binding commitment. A covenant is what marriage is. You've got to know this, that a covenant always has stipulations. Both parties put in their stipulations. I want you to understand this. I want you to understand that. Okay, can we agree? Okay, then we agree to get married. But this is a one-sided covenant because we're talking about a perfect holy God and we're talking about a broken sinful man who unless there is the shedding of blood cannot come in relationship with a holy God because without the shedding of blood no forgiveness and so here's what happens just to give you the bigger picture Moses come up to the mountain Moses goes up to the mountain God says I want to marry Israel I want them to be my goy really yeah go tell the people but understand that there are stipulations Moses goes down the mountain he gathers the people says people you're not gonna believe this God wants to be our husband he wants to marry us take us into his family and the people respond as you'll see these exact words whatsoever the Lord says that we will do that's them saying, he makes the stipulations. You just tell him whatever those stipulations are. We don't care. We will follow those stipulations. Moses goes up the mountain. He's in the presence of God. He says, here's what the people said. I told them, and they said, whatsoever you say, they will do. God says to Moses, all right, you go down. I want you to come back, but I want you to go down and tell them to get ready because I'm going to send them the stipulations you tell them to get ready for the wedding but I'll have to first get the stipulations so Moses goes to the mountain he gets the Ten Commandments as we know them he goes down to the people again and he says hey folks there are stipulations you know that here they are there are ten of them one two three four five six seven eight nine ten and the people hear the ten and their very words are yes whatsoever the Lord says we will do Moses tells God, God says, tell them to get ready. I want them to put on the most beautiful, gorgeous garments to prepare for this wedding. Go through the cleansing. This is going to be a wonderful marriage. And then there's the shedding of blood, and the marriage takes place. Now, you watch it unfold as we read, not all of it, but good portions of it. Let's start. Your outline will give you 
the, uh, the text and how we're breaking it down. First of all, to introduce it, the first two verses of Exodus 19. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai. They camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain, which is the presence of God. Now, you see your outline. It says the engagement, verses 3 through 9. Watch what happens. And Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Pause there. Do you remember the Red Sea, the parting of the sea, the Egyptians die? That's what he's referring to. And now look what he says. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, unless you understood, we'd read that and go, okay, that's interesting. Bore us on eagles' wings. Do you know that a mother eagle perched high above the ground in the nest has her little eaglets? And at the right time, she knows exactly when. She puts the eaglets on her wings and she launches out and soars higher and higher until she's at the right place, and then she drops the wing. And the little eaglets tumble. But what happens is, as they tumble, they start to fly. Maybe, just maybe, you have the litter, uh, the runt of the litter, so to speak, and, and one just is not going to fly. It's just tumbling. That mother eagle will swoop down, and catch that eaglet on the wing, take it back up again and say, okay, sweetheart, let's try this one more time and drop the wings, and there it goes until all the eaglets are flying on their own. He says, that's the way I've treated you all this time. Verse 5, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and here's that word goy, a holy goy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now look what happens. Whatever those words are, we're not sure yet. So Moses came and called the elders to the people, set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. They just heard the Ten Commandments. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I shall come to you in a thick cloud. This is for the wedding. In order that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. So now we've seen the preparation for the wedding. Uh, coming up in verse 10 through 11. It goes like this. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. This is the preparation. And let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down from Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Now, what we're left with now are the Ten Commandments to be revealed. And so we see in verses 1 through 17 the stipulations for marriage, the stipulations for marriage. We see in verse 1 and 2, it introduces it saying, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now he starts with his stipulations. The first set of stipulations are fourfold. You'll see the analogy here. 
These are stipulations related to loving God as opposed to loving other people. Stipulation number one, our love for God must be singular. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. No more dating. Dating ends. Number two, our love for God must be spiritual. Now look at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water or under the sea. No idols, meaning no reminders, no reminders of former loves. Get rid of them. Number three, our love for God must be sincere. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Hey, you better wear my name proudly everywhere you go. Don't take it off among certain people. Always keep it on. Number four, our love for God must be safeguarded. Exodus 20, look at verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Must find, spend time, a lot of time, in intimacy and just being together. Now you see in your outline that the next ones are stipulations to love others, for loving others. I'm going to give you the fill in the blanks. I'm not going to read the text. I think you're pretty familiar with them. It goes like this. Number five, our love for others must respect parental authority. Honor your father and mother. Number six, our love for others must respect human life. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Number seven, our love for others must respect marriage covenants. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Number eight, our love for God must respect personal rights. You shall not steal. Verse 15. Number nine, our love for God must respect the value of truth. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness. And then number 10, our love for God must respect personal possessions. Verse 17, you shall not covet what other people have. Now we can come to the ceremony. All the laws have been revealed. Look at the ceremony, verses 3 through 8 of chapter 24. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. There was the I do, I will. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose in the early morning, built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the sons of Israel. They offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. The other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. There's your word covenant. He read it in the hearing of the people. Here's the wedding. And they said... I will. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. 
So Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant. There it is again. Which is which the Lord has made, and then it says, with you in accordance with all these words. The covenant is made in accordance with all of these words. Remember what I said, no marriage without forgiveness? We're a broken, sinful people. He's a holy, perfect God. How would he marry us? Only if we're cleansed. Well, there's no cleansing without the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9, 22. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so there's why the blood is there. There can be a marriage between holy God and a sinful people. Very interesting. From now on, as I mentioned, he will be the husband of Israel. Now, I'd like to conclude. And I know I'm a minute or two long, but if you'll hold me in just a couple of minutes, this, will, this is from next week, but I don't think, I just cannot let it go without helping you understand why we've gone here. Verse 20 of chapter 20. Here's the conclusion. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come, one, to test you, that the fear of him may remain before you, that you may not sin. Do you understand why God gave us the commandments? It was to test us. There's the marriage analogy. Do you really love me? Do you love me? If you do, keep my commandments. Isn't that what Jesus said in the New Testament? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those are the stipulations you agreed to. Do you know that the Great Commission, Matthew 28, go to people, make disciples. How do you make disciples? Non-followers into followers? Well, you baptize them. Well, baptism doesn't mean pour water on them there. Etymologically, it means the idea of of, of coming into uh, an understanding and embracing of. It, it's saying, you know, I, I adhere to Jesus being who he claims to be. That doesn't make us a follower, though. So then we have to be taught what? We have to be taught that, oh, to become a Christian, then you have to observe all things whatsoever the Lord says. That's the Great Commission. Go tell people that that's what's required in becoming a follower. And we wonder, well, 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 why so many people that appear and say they're Christians, but they don't live like, well, are we Christians? I don't know, but I know this. No more would God show up on an altar when we walk down and say, oh, I'll pray my prayer of the marriage, and I will give my vows of the marriage, but oh, by the way, I'm not giving up my loves. Oh, by the way, I'm not giving up all of my reminders. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to wear a ring. And oh, by the way, I'm not going to spend much time with you, but yes, Lord, I'm ready. God won't show up at that marriage. It explains why in Matthew chapter 7 and 23, Jesus says, many come to the day, so say, Lord, Lord, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And explains that. It's because, no, there are stipulations, but not, that's not the only reason. It's also, number two, to enhance an existing love so that when we do come into marriage, that we can have a, a love growing warmer, not colder. Matthew 24, verse 12. It says, because of lawlessness, breaking the laws, your love will grow cold. Do you know that God married a broken people, Israel, though forgiven, and they began to break the commandments, and the love grew cold? Some of us right here as Christians, 
Oh, we came into marriage saying, yes, I know the stipulations, and I bend the knee. That's my intention of life. But we're broken people, and we allow ourselves to not follow commandment one or commandment four, whatever it is, and the love grows cold, and we say, why is my love so cold? Why am I not warmer? It all has to do for that one issue. Boy, keep the law that your love may continue. Let me tell you, this is a beautiful text. You'll start seeing all that God says in his law is because of his great love and his desire for us to know the same love and experience it. I think we're in for a good treat. I'll unfold this last little piece in a much bigger way next week. But I say pray for this series. Invite your friends. Would you all find somebody and say, listen to this podcast. I think you'll hear about something you've never probably heard it this way before. Let's bring a friend next week. Let's introduce them to the great answer to how to have love with Almighty God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we pray that throughout this series you're going to bless us by helping us understand whether we have ever really bent the knee and if we have to understand why these laws are so beautiful and important that we might see a love grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Would you grant to every person here an unusual delight in your law? When it's all said and done, may we all be saying, what a lovable law. And we thank you for such a glorious grace even now. We love you and we thank you. We bless you in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.